What do the Mueller report and the Notre Dame Cathedral fire have in common? They're both being used to push the same dangerous agenda. We're going to tell you what that agenda is. You're listening to the Propaganda Report. I'm Brad Binkley here with Monica Perez. Before we dive in, I want to start by thanking everyone who has supported us and who continues to support us in a variety of ways. You are the reason we're able to do what we do, and anyone who finds value in our work and wants to contribute as well, we'll tell you how to do that after the show. Monica, how are you? Great. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. The weather's amazing today. Trump was in town today, actually. Traffic was horrible, but he was here giving a speech at an opioid prevention conference. Yeah, that bums me out because they use that stuff, drug abuse and drug traffic and uh, terrorism and all these things as excuses to take away our civil liberties, which means they need to be real problems. And having my my immediate family worse than decimated by the drug war, it just it really bums me out. They, it's just to see like the actual carnage from these political uh, footballs or cl- political weapons. It's heartbreaking. It's all fun and games until you know. I'm curious about what they're doing with it when it comes to the criminal justice. I know there's been some work with criminal justice that they haven't really talked about much in the media. And I don't know about the punishment for major drug dealers, but I had heard that there's been talk, I know, in other countries of the death penalty for drug dealers. Singapore has that. Other countries do have that. Yeah, they've been talking about it more and more over here, which makes me think it's something that is going to be proposed over here. There is the two crimes outside of murder that that you can get the death penalty are treason and certain kinds of drug dealing. But I, I personally, I don't think drug dealing i mean it's an arm's length transaction it's a it's it's not there's a, it's not even a crime in my opinion it's yeah. only, it's only, it only exists it's only a thing because it's illegal it's only incredibly profitable because it's illegal and it, you can tell from everything from el chapo to the dark alliance by gary webb the iran contra thing and crack and all that stuff that that it's obviously a, a big part of the black operations funding and all that. And as a matter of fact, when I saw that George Soros was behind the legalizing marijuana effort years ago, I predicted the rise of heroin and opium as a, as a replacement for that black money or that, the CIA would stop being in charge of those operations because they have to make their money on the side. Otherwise they need congressional approval for it in and instead yield the floor to the NSA, which gets a blank check. But I mean, maybe their operations are totally different, but I've been keeping an eye on this. And whenever they talk about it, I always feel like that's the ad, the ad anyway, they, they may give a lot of attention to it and it really, it, it heightens people's interest and kids and all that. Like, I just think the whole thing is a scam top to bottom. And they keep in that report from Iron Mountain, which is just a wealth of insight into how they think when they're totally pragmatic about it. They talk about uh, a euphemized form of slavery. 
So they're slave for drug, slave to drugs, slave to debt. They talk about getting people out of the system, neutralizing them by wars, go, maybe putting them in college, putting them in the service, make them drug addicts, just getting them out of the way. So I think there's a lot of sinister stuff behind the drug war. Yeah, I'm interested in where it's headed because it has been something that's kind of been under the radar. But today we're going to be kind of picking up where we left off on Saturday talking about Fox News's reaction and other reactions to the fire at Notre Dame. We had played a clip of Shepard Smith who had someone call in that was giving some information on the ground or or whatever. Um do you want to go ahead you want me to go ahead and play that clip? We can Yeah, let's well, let just Interesting. First of all, I have to say, like, I just think it's hilarious that the guy who feeds us this crap's name is Shepard. Shepard the sheep, bro. So uh, because this is one of those things where it's just are people really believing this? And yes, yes, they are. So he introduces this guy. Listen hard to how he introduces this guy. Maybe uh, let's play it and then talk about it. Play just the first minute. Okay. Felipe Carcente is on the line with us, a French elected official who is in Paris now. Uh, Felipe, w- what what have you seen and what do you know? Well, I was um, I was uh, close to the scene when it happened, and no, I left the place because I we want to let people work around it. Everybody's really under shock now in France. I would tell you something. It's um, even if. Nobody, no, no, nobody died. I mean, it's like a 9/11. It's a French 9/11, you know, and it's um, it's a big shock. I mean, this uh, church was there for more than 850 years. Uh, even even the Nazi didn't dare to destroy it. Um, and you need to know that for the past years we had churches desecrated each and every week in France, all over France. So of course you will hear the story about the the politically correct, the political correctness, which will tell you that it's probably an accident. Sir, but sir, sir, I, we're not going to speculate here of the cause of something well, which we don't know. If you have no, observation, if you have observations no. or you know something, we would love to hear it. No, I'm just telling you something. What you need to be ready. No, to sir, to- we're not doing that here. Not now. Okay. Not on my watch. Okay. Felipe Carcente, okay. it's very good of you to be here. That's the first part of it. Yeah. Okay. So, first of all, he introduces the guy as an elected official. So, Fox hunted some guy down who is a French elected official. First of all, even when I listened to that the first time, I thought, what does that mean? What does that mean? Like, that's the most generic <laughs> introduction I ever heard. So yeah, it could be a school board official for all Yeah. Know, what does local, that mean? Yeah. But I didn't catch the, I didn't look this guy up and I never would have spelled his name this way. K A R S E N T Y until you told me his story. Should I read the, uh, the Wikipedia entry for this guy? Just the first paragraph of yeah, it? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, Felipe Carcente, born in 1966, is a French media analyst and the founder of Media Ratings, a company monitoring the French media for bias. Carcente came to widespread public attention when he was sued for libel by the public French television network France 2 
over accusations of staged footage by France 2 over the killing of a 12-year-old Palestinian boy, Mohammed al-Durrah, libel for which he was eventually and definitively convicted. That's just the first. That's just the first paragraph. That's certainly sounding familiar to someone in America. Oh, you think that it's like uh, Alex Jones? Sounds exactly like Alex Jones. So he... He was convicted, though, of libel. Right. So I'm like, he was, this is obviously a news story. I mean, he's in the U.S. Wikipedia. That that means he's like a household name there for being convicted for libel again by, by falsely accusing the state media over a conspiracy theory. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. He's like their Alex Jones and Fox News. Yeah. So it says, um, all right. He, as far as the only, the only thing that talks about an election with this guy is that in 2012, seven years ago, he stood as a dissident right wing candidate against the candidate endorsed by Sarkozy's Union for a Popular Movement in the eighth constituency for French residents overseas, which includes, so he's an international figure. French residents in Israel, as well as in Italy, Turkey, Greece, and several other countries for the 2012 legislative election. He finished third with 15% of the vote and did not advance to the runoff. In February 2013, the Constitutional Council found irregularities in the funding of his electoral campaign and barred him from standing for public office for a period of one year. So now I'm concluding as we're reading this. At first, I thought he could be an unwitting participant in this, and maybe he was. Maybe it doesn't rise to that level. But he's definitely, or I should say my assessment on just these few things I'm reading, is that he is actually uh, an agent provocateur. He's not just like I think Alex Jones is. Uh, so he's there to be this lightning rod or whatever. And that was the purpose he served with Chef Smith, but I think it's extremely important that Chef Smith lied about who this guy was. Absolutely. Either Shepard Smith or whoever told Shepard Smith who was coming on to the show. I don't know if it was him or his producer or whoever, but they absolutely had to have known who that guy was and absolutely put him up there so that they could do what they did. Because the guy was saying things that are provable and true. That Yes, this is what's so interesting. This, to me, is what made me coin a phrase, which I know you liked. Uh, Well, maybe we'll we'll get to that at at the end because you have to pull it all together first. But yes, this idea that churches were desecrated all over France. Was it Johnny Cook? I hate to give... uh, Credit where it isn't due, although he really gets ahead of things, but so do a lot of my other tweets. Somebody sent me a couple of articles immediately, immediately while the thing was on fire about these church churches desecrated in France. And I didn't think to do it, but I bet if I had gone to foxnews.com before the show, I could have found those articles on Fox News. <laughs> Or in the journal, you know, or in the sun, whatever that Rupert Murdoch owns in London. Absolutely. And that cathedral is targeted almost every year because it is the 
most significant and well-known structure in France. One of the headlines was that the heart of France is on fire, just like the major structures in America. These are always targets for propaganda of the deed, which is essentially a terrorist act in order to influence uh, domestic or world opinion. And they're always targeted. So it is not at all unreasonable. It is, it is very it's a very plausible theory. It's the most likely because of this. They you go to this. France has really hit rock bottom, in my opinion. I was there a couple of years ago. And I mean, just even the sanitation was terrible. But prior to that, my experience was uh, like I was really raised on a diet of um, socialism. I mean, can't can't put food on the table. I can't keep the bathrooms clean. And that that has been my observation of France last time I was there. But prior to that, I've been there a few times and. They, it wasn't that level of incompetence. And when it comes to tourism and like, if you think about their food, their farmers, yes, I think a free market yields better stuff. And I don't think we have a free market here. It's not like our food is better than theirs. I don't think it is. And I think it's because we don't have a free market. They have a highly controlled market and they're a little better at it than we are. Cause I think, cause they're of a mind. You know, yeah, I think that this kind of stuff really doesn't work when you're in conflict, but it can work when you're in harmony, like Sweden, the welfare state and France with like the food state. They do seem to know how to do what they need to do as far as the food, like a national treasure and the tourism, which is national treasure. And when you look at that, something that fragile and that important, you, I, I, it would be, it's, you know, just thinking of our U.S. FAA aviation administration, that, uh, the, the competence that that government agency displays to me, just, I, I've said this like 10 times recently, obliterates the idea that there's a, uh, uh, that the government is always incompetent when it comes to stuff they really care about and tourism in Paris and Notre Dame, the mayor of Paris, I mean, would have an interest in having human beings literally walking around looking for fire all day long. What's that going to cost you? A hundred bucks a day? And the workers were there. The workers left like a half an hour before this thing just like burst into flames. It just, I don't buy that that thing burned that much without being noticed, addressed, whatever. I just am not buying that that was an accident at all. And then when I discovered all that was to gain from this, I, there's no, to me, I have no doubt that that, that, okay. So there's, so there's three things. So there's the official narrative, which is now it was an accident. Then there's the official conspiracy. I, I don't theory. think that, I think that's still a theory. I think that the news has just made it seem like that has been a conclusive uh, finding, but I, think I don't some think some news came out of there that they're all right. Well, I think that's the working, uh, the working position of the investigators in Paris. I don't think that's Shep Smith. I think that's coming out of Paris. Okay. The last I'd heard, and I given, I haven't looked in a couple of days, but the last I heard, they they were assuming it was an accident, but they had not conclusively de determined that yet. Okay, so the official theory is that it's an accident. Yeah. The official conspiracy theory is that it's terrorism. And my theory is that it was an inside job. So there we have three competing theories in order of acceptability. 
Yeah. Okay, so... Let me say one thing. I find it really interesting that the day after this thing caught fire, something like 200 people died in church fires on Easter in another country, and I did not hear one news report say, does this lend any credibility to the theory that possibly Mm -hmm. the Notre Dame fire was not an accident? Not one person made that even suggested that because I, when you shut people down and say all these right wing alt right horrible conspiracy theories are suggesting that it wasn't an accident and then the next day that very thing that they were suggesting happens in another country and then you just pretend that the two are in separate universes that, that's that's some pretty amazing compartmentalization in my opinion yeah and and it goes to what i think we're going to develop here is that they want you to have a blind acceptance of the official narrative. And again, they want you to defer to authority, wait, wait for authority and defer to authority. So they, they're getting, they no longer, we've observed this for a couple of years now. They are no longer asking us to look at evidence or prove something or wait until the jury comes in. It's like, no, you have to accept the official narrative blindly and you have to wait for it. That's why they're talking about people who are qualified or authorized to speculate, to speak. It's all about qualifications and authorization. Yeah, and I think it's important to emphasize that this was Fox News. This This was the network and it wasn't just Shep Smith. It was another. No, right. We're gonna. We're like, let's, like, let's it, unroll it. Let's do it. The fact that it's Fox News, the one that is usually blamed for spreading conspiracy yeah. theories, so but they're doing it. Is let's play what Shep says, and then show yeah. like, and then we'll do the other ones too, because it's just like at the, you can see there was definitely a pattern coming out of this that day yes. out of Fox. Here, let's here is Shepard, yeah. right? The righteous Shepherd. Uh. We're, we're watching the at least partial destruction of a world icon. Notre Dame Cathedral has been burning for two and a half hours. The initial reports we got were that the fire started in a construction zone in the rear. We are thousands of miles away, and the man on the phone with us has absolutely no information of any kind about the origin of this fire, and neither do I. And the fire investigators will at some point come to a determination about what caused this. And conspiracy theories about anything are worthless. And in many cases, counterproductive and injurious to society. And those who entertain them are not acting in the best interests of the people of this planet. That was a pre-written monologue right there. Yes, and I... we. Definitely have to play that again. So let's just talk about it. And then we've got to play it again. It's too crazy. Too crazy. He says, initial reports are that from the investigators on the ground is that the fire came from the rear. This idiot has no information whatsoever about the origin of the fire and neither do I. Although I just told you that it came from the rear, but we have no information. And then, uh, we will not entertain conspiracy theories. First of all, they got this guy who was a conspiracy theorist and they put him on the air to say that exact thing. 
And then they shut him down, right, in a pre-written script. And then he goes into Socrates must drink hemlock or crucify Jesus or whatever. Like, this is injurious to society. Uh, we got, anyway, say what you want to say, but I have to hear it again. I mean, this was so I could take this into an acting audition and do and use this as my monologue. And they would be like, that's a really dramatic, over the top <laughs> monologue. Please leave. That, that's too big. We need something more believable. <laughs> and he's so he's so good at it. like injurious to thing. society. Give me a break. I mean, that that is extraordinary that someone is saying something that is provable and true and that that, that is yeah. just as plausible of a theory. And that he is saying that by providing facts, it's injurious to society. Yes. Max Kellerman said the same thing when Steph Curry said he thinks maybe the U.S. couldn't make it to the moon. So they faked it right. in order not to lose the cold water. I mean, yes. he didn't say that, but that's not that Max Kellerman was like, he should he should be ostracized for leading the children down a garden path and all that kind of stuff because it's injurious to say. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the exact word that Max Kellerman used. Yeah, so we're going to tell you why the they're free doing that speech. here in a little yes, while. Yes, we're going to get to that, and that then we can talk about the... Uh, I'm dying to introduce my glossary term, but, but I want to... Here it is again. Uh, we're, we're watching the at least partial destruction of a world icon... Notre Dame Cathedral has been burning for two and a half hours. The initial reports we got were that the fire started in a construction zone in the rear. We are thousands of miles away, and the man on the phone with us has absolutely no information of any kind about the origin of this fire. And neither do I. And the fire investigators will at some point come to a determination about what caused this. And conspiracy theories about anything are worthless and in many cases counterproductive and injurious to society. And those who entertain them are not acting in the best interests of the people of this planet. Of so, this planet. Did he say planet? Yeah. He said planet? I thought he said land. He said people of this planet. <laughs> But uh, conspiracy theories about anything are worthless, like the Charles Manson murders and Watergate. Like what? I mean, seriously, is that what he that's what he said? That's what I would say if I was in on a conspiracy theory that I didn't want the public to know about. We need to get rid of all RICO laws. Any accusation against me and my people is worthless and harmful to this planet. They used to say that about the mafia, and of course, it was invented to shut down the JFK. Uh, the idiots who thought you can't—they should have, have mob <laughs> bosses reading the news. At least it would be more entertaining. It's on fire. Anybody who says a fucking word, <laughs> it's gonna hurt this can, planet. Oh, I know the guy who did that. I can tell that's his work. I've seen. Oh wait, like we don't do stuff like but that. You're done. Conspiracies you're dead. aren't true. Sorry. Uh, so free speech is injurious to society. I love that. Love yeah, it. and that's not the only one. And it and it is. It is. But that depends on the society. You know what I mean? Like, do you want don't you want to injure a society that can't take the exposure of the truth? Yeah, free speech is injurious to the status quo and those who have unlimited power because of it. Well, the people who but there are reasons why. When I started digging into the Notre Dame thing, uh, they 
it totally reminded me of the Twin Towers story where they said it was full of asbestos. And if you, if you believe the reports of the people who were covered in dust, that chick, the dust lady is dead of cancer. I don't know if that stuff like works that quickly or what, but people got very sick after that from all reports. And what they said about the Twin Towers was it was so full of asbestos that the regulations that have emerged in New York since those days of asbestos really made it impossible to to remove the asbestos. It made it impossible to use the buildings, and so did like the fact that you can't wire it for modern internet and all that, and that you couldn't blow it up. You couldn't do a controlled demolition of it like you would normally do just because it was so full of asbestos and all the other people around, blah, blah, blah. So the best thing that ever happened to the guy who bought it a year before and overinsured it was that what uh, was 9-11. God forbid that anyone could be that evil that kill all those people. But the, the Notre Dame thing, when I started seeing that they had been in a quandary that they could not get the money or the authorization or get through the regulatory barriers to fix it up like it needed to be. It was hard to repair, expensive, all that. Uh, and they wanted to finish it by the uh, Olympics that are coming there in five years. And they just weren't going to get the money to do it. And they weren't going to get the approvals to do it. And they weren't going to get it done in time. On the one hand, so this solved all of that because now they can, uh, they have all the money they need. It's a victim. It's emotional. The people who are going to give the money are real secularists. So they can, and they're going to have a say over it. No doubt. And it reminds me of when Trump bought the Bonwit Teller building. It was going to cost a lot to like remove the facade, which was extremely valuable. And he made all sorts of agreements. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll pay top dollar, whatever. And, and he just went in there and took possession and just blew the gargoyles up. And he's like, ah, it was too expensive. I mean, really, he should have been really, I mean, it was priceless anyway. So it was really a sin to destroy it like that, but he got away with it. And that's some of the structures inside that. Some of the, I don't know what I can't remember what they were specifically, but some of the most cherished statues and monuments or whatever were removed from it the day before. Yeah, I I absolutely predicted that. I said, we will know if this was an inside job, if they took the treasures away ahead of time. I figured they would say that they were removed because of the renovation. Mm -hmm. But that was an absolute tell for me. Like I I didn't even research it afterwards because I was like, they definitely saved the treasures because they would have done that. Like I just... All the signs were here, but then the kit, the clincher on, on them doing this was the stuff I saw from last year on the Corbett report from December saying about the yellow vests, which of course I think all protest movements are made up until proven otherwise, but I think this is proven otherwise. And they, yeah, they, they are saying now just what they were saying then, which is why are we paying all this money to restore Notre Dame when people are starving. Now that makes no sense because it's such a draw. Well, let me say this state... about the yellow vest. They didn't just say that. They protested the Saturday following the cathedral burning by setting cities on fire and pelting officers with rocks and telling police officers to go kill themselves. They, they unleashed violence and chaos 
they they set uh, they set ablaze parts of that country because they were upset at least they claimed to be upset that billionaires were giving money to a cathedral instead of to the people they think that they should be forced to give money to the people and they're saying the same talking points that we hear the resistance saying over here yeah, I, I'm, I do I'm worried that that's foreshadowing the type of violence because that the yellow yeah. vests are violent. Uh, that's I'm worried that they're an advanced version of what the resistance yeah. is. I wouldn't be surprised if they got hijacked and yeah. made violent to discredit them the way kind of the Black Panthers were in the '60s, if I'm not mistaken about that. Yeah, and they but but what happened? There was a point at which France, Paris specifically or France in general closed down a bunch of tourist attractions so that people from the outside wouldn't see the unrest that was happening. So I thought if they really want to change uh, Paris, if they really want to change France, because the LFS are responding to some uh, policy changes they don't want, radical policy changes they don't want. And the idea would be they can they can really bring the hammer down. When you have a crisis, you just throw everything into that fire. Mm-hmm. So if they keep people from going in there, they can uh, they can they can just purge. You know, the LFS or the protesters or whatever. They have five years or whoever however long to really clean it up, and then just funnel all that tour. You know, put off that tourism until they've cracked down. Yeah. The, the yellow vest, I don't, it might have been started genuinely. Spontaneously, yeah. I think it's controlled now. They've been, they are too organized. They're too consistent. They, they, I think it's like 24 straight weeks. They have done some sort of coordinated, organized action, uh, with just massive amounts of people. And that is, that's something that the resistance over here is trying to achieve is that level of coordination and consistency. And that, that gives so much power. To the people who are pulling the strings of that group, I mean, yeah, so I would much be power. surprised if it wasn't hijacked. Yeah, I mean, that's why, like, I'm kind of hopeless about any kind of organization. It just, even the Tea Party, I mean, that just gets hijacked. And actually, the indivisible stuff that wasn't organic and then hijacked. I mean, you can see the founding no, documents. The, I've, been, I've, well, I've been watching <laughs> yes. that since day one. Yes, that was yes. started by former uh, congressional aides yeah, from the Obama yeah, yeah. era. Completely. Let's hear the other clip of uh, Neil Cavuto doing the same thing that Shepard Smith did. This is did. funny. Neil Cavuto was was a Sesame worked at Sesame Street. Like that just goes to show you. Like did he really? Yes. They they it's, he's like an info <laughs> babe. You know, they bring these people, this warm, cuddly guy. Well, you know, I'm not one to want war, but every once in a while, yeah, <laughs> you know. Okay, so Neil Cavuto here is doing a similar thing. And I want to emphasize again that, yeah, the cathedral stuff, that's important, but it's the shutting down of people that are revealing factual things that is really the takeaway here. Because this is going to apply broadly to any event that happens. Catholic League President Bill Donahue joins you right now on the phone. Bill, uh, we don't know what started this. We do know the repercussions and what has been left as a result of this. Ruins and ruins that could... It takes some time to fix and make right, and you never can make it as it was. Well, Neil, if it is an accident, it's a monumental tragedy. But forgive me for being suspicious. Just last month, a 17th century church was set on fire in Paris. 
We've seen tabernacles knocked down. Crosses have been torn down. Statues have been no, we smashed. Don't, we don't know that. We don't know. So if we can avoid what your suspicions might be, I do want to look at what happens now. There was a very pricey rebuilding and renovation effort going on that involved a good deal of Catholic fundraising campaigns. I know in this country and abroad, this renovation was paid for up front. So in other words, all the monies were there. And now I'm wondering how much more the Catholic Church commits to this, or do you think now they first want to get to the bottom of it? Well, first they have to get to the bottom of it, and they will rebuild it. There's no question about that. And they Certainly the Catholic Church will come up with the money for it. That's not even a question. But uh, I, I, I'm sorry. I mean, when I find out that the Eucharist is being destroyed and excrement is, is being smeared on crosses, Wait a minute, this Bill, is going on Gary, now. We can, we, Bill, I, I love you, Bill, but we cannot make conjectures about this. So thank you very, oh, very much. Bill, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Thank you very, very much. I do want to let people know, and again, we're not trying to be rude to our guests here. There is so much we do not know about what, what happened here. We do know that about four hours ago, something started here. Now, there, there are incidents that have been raised against the Catholic Church, a lot of popular tourist sites, certainly in and around Paris, no stranger to attacks, but it is another leap to start taking um, views like that when we don't know. Dude, I was just thinking much- about these two guys, especially that first one. You, you bring Alex Jones, the equivalent of Alex Jones, on right. your show, and then you act shocked when he suggests there's a yes. conspiracy afoot. Yes, yes. This is Phil Donahue, who is not the Phil Donahue. It's the Phil Donahue who's the Catholic League president. And first of all, he was reading. So he was reading what he said in the beginning. You can just hear it. Yeah, yeah. I and think a lot of phone. people do. A lot of people have their... Yeah, I, I got it. But I mean, he's he's been around this guy, Phil Donahue. I've heard of him before. He's he's got his media training, whatever. Right. Yeah, it could have been a scripted back and forth. I, you know, I, I or or maybe it was supposed to sound like he was reading. You know, I don't know. These people are very subtle. Like at first I thought Carsensi was 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 a dupe, but now I think he's a he's a player. You know what I mean? Like it's just there's something weird about that. Uh and Phil, uh, Neil Cavuto throws in there, uh, you can never make it as it was because I feel like they're going to make it a uh, syncretic thing, like a thing that appeals to kind of uh, will be the seat of the world religion. It's going to have a lot of modernistic stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if there's no, although it is, you know, if there's no Catholic stuff, but. The, is, the symbolism of it will change. I think that's the important thing that they might try to like, because this, the destruction essentially and then transformation of what was the country's possibly strongest symbol, especially for Catholicism over there. And if they're going to change it to something else, then that's that's their purpose accomplished right there. Yes. When I first when this erupted on the first day of Holy Week, it was very clear to me it was symbolic of destroying the old church, which I think like they did in Russia before the revolution and killing the czar. That's exactly what I compared it with. Like you had to actually kill the czar. So there's no going back. And I feel like Pope Francis is the perfect pope for this. But uh so I think that's foreshadowing. Neil Cavuto's making sure we understand you can never make it as it was, but you you could make it close, but they're not yeah. gonna. He said the pricey rebuilding was paid for up front. So mm-hmm. there might there was probably it was probably paid for up front to renovate it 
uh, and he talks about the Catholic Church fundraising. They and Phil Donahue says, uh, "Oh, the church will rebuild it. The church will come up with the money. The church doesn't own it. It's owned by the state of France. It's you know state. That's interesting. Yeah, they don't own it, and." Uh, maybe there was fundraising and maybe the church put up the money, but the church is not going to be rebuilding it. They do not own it. They have the perpetual right to be the sole users of it as a religious place, but that's it. So then they, has it always been that way? Uh, since about a hundred years, I think more, give or take, maybe less than that, but. There was a law passed in France in the first half of the 20th century that all of these cathedrals and historical churches were properties of the state. I think they were basically nationalized. But the thing that they're doing, it's clearer here than it was in the Shep Smith thing, is that they're actually putting that conspiracy theory out there. They're putting it out there with the facts, the details. And Cavuto is affirming that those facts are real. Then he said, like, there have been a lot of these reports, but we're not, but it's a leap to, <laughs> to set, suggest this is part of that pattern. These facts which, are true, but this yeah. is still a conspiracy theory that should not be mentioned. Right. It's not, it's not a leap to think of this as part of that pattern. And he said, well, something started here, but we really don't know what it is. And that, and, but yeah, so what, what Phil Donahue was saying is like, these are facts. And so did the other guy, Carcenti's like, these are facts. He's like, no facts here, no facts on this network. Right. And this is where I think your idea of how this is a portent of war comes in. Absolutely. Prior to any war, they tighten up the controls on speech, and I, I think this is what's been going on. I think this is one of the major purposes of the crackdown on social media and uh, people getting banned because it's not – And our WordPress purge. Yes, and work getting purged. It's people who question the basic assumptions that everything is built upon that are getting banned, and – that's what I think this – that's what I think the Mueller report is really about, not about you know the fight, the domestic fight they're talking about. They put those guys up there just like you pointed out. They set them up so that they could be knocked down to signal to the world you cannot question our narratives. We are the ones – we, the media, are the ones that determine what assumptions you will accept, and you will not question them. And if you do, you will get shut down. Here, In some countries, you'll go to jail now. I want to talk about the Mueller report. So let me just put the, my cherry on top of yes, this is yes, that, the the, yes, that these guys. So these Carcenti and Donahue were, were saying facts and Shep and Neil were saying what you're doing is bad for society. It's bad for us. It's wrong. It's bad for this country. And I coined the term. Those are unpatriotic facts. And we don't want to hear them. They're unpatriotic facts. They might be facts, but but it's still wrong of you to bring them up because they undermine the faith yes. in this country. They and undermine this is, our push for war. Right. <laughs> yes. And the Mueller report does two things, I think, in that vein. One is it does validate – it validates unquestioningly – the nobody's scrutinizing the basic finding of the Mueller report, which is that the Russian collusion was real and yep. that one of the things Bingo. they did was undermine our faith in in 
government. That That's what they're saying their goal was, not to change the outcome of the election, but to undermine the faith in the election, to start this that they started. And the other thing, which is absolutely true, it's come up. I mean, Rush was just absolutely drilling this into people's heads last week. What they did, and I think Trump talked about it today, what they did was they proved a negative, which is basically impossible to do, but they did everything they could. They spent $35 million to try to prove, to turn over every rock to prove that Trump was a bad guy, and they inadvertently proved that he's the squeaky cleanest guy ever. And Rush emphasized over and over again on an international basis, on an as far as international dealings go. He didn't talk about domestic stuff, and I don't know if that's because he's setting the stage for funny business domestically to emerge and not have egg on his face, or if it's just not important, that's never really true. But he emphasized that from the international perspective, Trump, ha- we inadvertently elected and then inadvertently proved that he was, and I think I might be quoting, the least corrupt politician on an international basis that we've ever elected to the presidency. Wow. I did hear Rush talking about some of that stuff and also affirming the First point you made about Russia did it. Russia Bill Barr, the Attorney General in Congress, Every, absolutely that is, affirmed it. The evidence is so flimsy. It's trust the intel agencies, and the 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 narrative that we were getting after the Mueller report was this is a win for the intel agencies because it proves everything they said about Russian interference is correct, even if Trump did not technically collude. And the media has been saying this proves we were right in our reporting about Russian interference. This is a win for the media. So it's a win for the intel agencies. It's a win for the media, both of which have been lying to us for three (laughs) years now, blatantly, uh, subtly, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. over the top sometimes. Sometimes they use truth to lie by taking it out of context. Still Mm -hmm. a lie. It's a false impression that is the lie. But the Mueller report, what it did was this. Prior to the Mueller report's release, Republicans were attached to Russia. The the smear was that if you support Trump or if you're a Republican, you're doing the work of Putin. So you can't wage war. The propaganda literature talks about a country must get unity domestically when it comes to foreign policy if you're going to wage war. You have to unify behind uh, your, your leaders, and you have to find a demon, an enemy to point their attention to. You couldn't do that when you have the Republicans and Trump attached to Russia. So the Mueller report by – absolving Trump of that attachment, absolving Republicans of that attachment, frees them up. And I saw the New York Times. New York Times published an article about how give it up, Democrats. There was no collusion. The Wall Street Journal also posted an article like that. We're going to slowly but surely see more and more articles coming from these liberal outlets that say give up the collusion stuff. Give it up because they need the right and the left because the Republicans and the Democrats both now agree that Russia's evil. Russia interfered with our election, and we must stop them. So they're in agreement on that now, and they can unify if they want to wage war on them and China, and they can turn their attention to quibble domestically. And this is what Walter Lippmann used to talk about. Keep the public. You have to keep them unified on foreign policy if you want to wage war. But you keep them fighting amongst each other domestically, and they will not – that way they'll stay out of all your foreign policy business. I actually observed that several years ago. I was like, wait – We've got our eye on the wrong ball. Right. It, yeah, I observed it. I was like, it, yeah. it doesn't matter. And, and the absolute 
icing on the cake for me was when I think it was Rachel Maddow was saying, can you believe he's going to pull our troops out of Syria? What a Russian colluder. And it's like, <laughs> can you believe that the spokeswoman for the left is advocating war on a country that isn't even accused of having done anything to us? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, like what, what is the point? What is the point? It, it's yeah, it's unbelievable. It's they're going to have, they're going to see the right and the left can continue fighting over the obstruction of justice thing. Wow. And they can even, even if they were to wage some sort of war against Russia and China or whoever, we can still fight domestically and not pay attention to what's going on. That's the whole idea. And they're not going to impeach Trump. Okay. Because this impeachment of Trump and this obstruction of justice, another thing it's doing is it's taking all these people that they whipped up into a madness over Russian collusion and it's giving them an escape valve, so to speak, yeah, where well, plus they're they not going to be their, demoralized. They didn't get justice. Right. So now they can slowly shift. They're saying, it's okay. It's okay. We're going to shift your rage over to obstruction of justice. And I'm, I'm getting this in all of the emails now. And I knew this was going to be the case because this is what the, the indivisible guide talks has been talking about the obstruction of justice investigation since November when they sent out the new guide. They're acting like this obstruction of justice vest investigation is a response from the Mueller report. They've been talking about how this was on the, this was the plan since they sent this thing out last November, their playbook. And here's why they're not going to impeach Trump because Trump is the, biggest cash cow for the left and the right that the world has ever seen. And you don't take the star player out of what's going to be the biggest money-making machine history has ever seen. The 2020 election, the Democrats and the Republicans, the wealthy, the ones on top, the ones pulling the string are going to make so much money. I get every time a controversy is brought up at all and these sensational headlines and the left and the right are fighting with each other. I get 40 emails from every one of these campaigns telling me that we're all going to die. If I can just yeah. donate $3 here, $5 <laughs> there, or they are going to make so much money. If you remove Trump from that equation, they are taking away their biggest cash cow they've ever had. There's no way they're going to do that. So that's why they're kind of like, well, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't impeach. They're not going to impeach the only, not going to impeach right now. The only way they might ever bring some sort sort of impeachment thing is if they were to do it when it was going to happen to maximize the conflict and maximize the money. So right before the election might be a time when they actually were to do it because then it would maximize everything and it would enable them to you know, expand that conflict and expand that money, but they're not going to do it right now. And another reason they're not going to impeach is because it says in the indivisible guide, it makes very clear if you read that guide that they're not going to impeach. They like tell them what would happen. They say, okay, guys, impeachment would be really, really hard because they don't want to impeach. So here's what we would have to do to impeach. And they, they list this long line of stuff. They basically show how it's going to be impossible and they shouldn't do it. But what they should do is they should present an alternative vision of America that um, contrast Trump's racist, authoritarian, bigoted um, version of America. So they want to paint another picture in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders picture of America in uh, ju juxtaposed to what they have painted Trump's America as, which is not a real. Well, I mean, you know, the picture they painted is false, but they can't do that if they don't have Trump to run against. So the only way they can paint this socialistic, communistic vision of America is if they have what they have presented to be the complete opposite of that as their opponent. And the media always loves to have their opponent in office. 
It's so much better for radio. So much better. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I mean this is the this is the best time for these elite <laughs> for these CNN. Yes. It's the best freaking time. Now I want to read you some quotes. They, some of these you're really gonna like. The reason I want to read these is because we've done a couple of shows presenting some evidence that it's the British or the British elites, I would say, and whoever that they work with. I'm not blaming the country or the people. I'm saying British elites, people at the Chatham House, Chatham House, and uh, you know the international players that they work with, because they con- they have been conning us into wars over and over yeah. again since mm-hmm. 1776. And I want to read some quotes because they're going to sound eerily familiar and I think kind of eye opening because I think it's I think it's important that people know this stuff because if people keep falling into this madness, then we are going to inadvertently help push ourselves into another war. I think the war thereafter is Iran, though. Maybe I, I'm not I, I'm I'm not good on that on the foreign policy aspect of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like why Iran. I think the thing about Iran is. Basically, they there's like uh, the region of the Middle East, the the whole like UK US Israel triangle. I don't know how the relationship is. Israel might be an outpost. People think that because they're the bankers or that Rothschilds established it, they're really in control. I really don't know, but that's a, an important secondary region. So there's big big regions like Eurasia and the Anglo American Alliance. And then there are the secondary regions and big regions have hegemons like China and Russia and the U.S. Germany would be the natural hegemon of Europe. So a German-Russian alliance would control that whole thing. And then there's the regional hegemons of the, of the areas that we, that the bigger people do control. And the Middle East is an important region because of the oil and that oil stretches underneath kind of towards Central Asia, the stands and everything. And Iran is in that direction and they, and Saudi Arabia, I think it's pretty clear is an outpost of the UK, US, Israel alliance. And they, uh, are the kind of the representative hegemon there. And Iran is kind of the alternative hegemon there and Russia, assuming that that, that tension is still real between the UK, uh, and Germany, Russia, and UK, US and Germany, Russia, then, um, like the UK wants to, to neutralize Germany so it doesn't give Russia the control of the world island, as they call it, Eurasian, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so Russia, so let's just say that it's what you see is what you get at that level of the 3D chess. Iran goes in, uh, with Russia and they have control of, say, oil and gas. Not only the actual resources, but the ability to uh, get those resources to the consumer. And like the easiest way to think of it is, so who's going to be the regional hegemon, Iran or Saudi Arabia? And the, and Syria, the Syrian conflict and the Ukrainian conflict, in my mind, are really good examples of what is going, what's important, what's going on is that so Qatar and Iran sit on top of the largest gas field in the world, I think, maybe, or up there, a big one. And uh, they could each build a pipeline to Europe through Syria. Who's, who is Syria going to say okay to? I think Syria was saying okay to Iran the way Ukraine was kind of saying okay to Russia about um, controlling the gas flowing into Europe. And now, now that we've kind of like, 
stood in the way in Ukraine. We have these natural liquefied natural gas deals from the U.S. to fund Europe, which makes to supply Europe, which it makes no sense at all unless you've taken the natural economic player out. So in Syria, I think the control over Syria is about controlling the pipeline route from that gas field into Europe. So if you take Iran out, you take out the competition for control of those resources. And it's not so much that they need to control the resources. They just need to make sure they don't have competition. They don't need the resource. I think the way I understand it, they don't really need the resources so much as you can't have somebody, a big player compete because competition is a sin. It'll drive prices down. It'll give other people control. I mean, even going back to where you, I pieced together a red or um, both that maybe Rockefeller was behind taking out the czar because they uh, might have actually developed in that burgeoning energy sector viable way to sell and develop Russian oil. And by putting an anti-competitive uh, regime in there, they could, they knew that, that the communists wouldn't be as good at developing that stuff. And then when Stalin came out and kind of wasn't that bad at it, they undermined him. And, and then similarly busting up the alliance between Germany and Russia, that was like the UK's thing. But if you think of it from an energy point of view, it's always kind of been a competition for monopoly, not necessarily the resources, but the monopoly. And so that's why I think that they're really after Iran um, because it's easier to take out and it's as important, if not more important, on who controls the chessboard. You don't have to take the king or the queen or whatever if if he's if you can take out everybody who protects him. I know that was a long story, but I feel like, and you know, I mean, it's, no, it's good. I, I there's an opportunity to kind of put stuff together. Like this is yeah. why I get frustrated with the mainstream media going over and over and over and over again. Jussie Smollett. It's like, you know what? Why don't you take five minutes, however long that just took, and give a give a coherent narrative, and then tell me what's wrong with the narrative? Yeah. Instead of just saying, "Don't question unpatriotic facts." You're bad for society. Go drink some hemlock. It's like, okay, I just laid out a theory that I, you know, it's, it may even be like totally well accepted. I don't know. Because if you say it to one person, they're like, obviously it's pipeline of Stan. And if you say it to somebody else, it's like, you're a conspiracy nut job. Yeah, exactly. And this book I'm about to read from, it's a massive book that has more citations than any book I've ever seen in my life. And most of the citations are to congressional hearings, are to publications from Germany, from Russia, from the UK. It's called Getting Us Into War, written by Porter Sargent. He was a well-respected academic, and his body of work is amazing. This book is talking about how we're being pulled in to World War II. It was published in 1938. Eight or nine, I believe. And he's relating to how the British conned us into World War One. And at this point in time, it was the popular opinion that we had been duped into World War One because the memoirs written by the British propagandists boasted about how stupid we were 
just as Edward Bernays did. The whole narrative for World War One, making the world safe for democracy, was undermined and national public opinion accepted that we were conned. But as we got closer and closer to World War Two, they memory hold all that. And they, some of the same stuff started happening again. And this guy documented it and he put it all in this book. And he's got a whole bunch of other books like this too. Here's something that he said back in 1938, I believe. He said, early in May, again, I wrote, can we have a congressional investigation of the British propaganda in this country? It's subtle, skillful, more highly organized, technically more perfect than it was in the last war. It's so good that people don't recognize it. All they hear is the lumbering of the German propaganda machine, and much of that is due to the skill of the British Foreign Office. Just about every propaganda book you read about World War One and World War Two, especially World War One, talks about how the reason that we didn't see the British propaganda is because the British propaganda and our propaganda was so good at manipulating us domestically that they made us think that everything was evil German propaganda. So any time a fact came out that was an unpatriotic fact, any time yeah. an unpatriotic fact came out, they just said that's just the work of evil German yes, propaganda. Yes, absolutely. That we still get that. Didn't somebody call That's you a Nazi? That's what they're doing with Russia. Somebody called you a Nazi. I didn't yes. even get it. I right, didn't yeah. even get when you were, what little trigger it was that you said that was considered unpatriotic. Somebody and I've done Charles that too. Lindbergh. Yeah. Yes. That's what they're doing with Russia now. So anytime a fact comes out, they just say, that's just Russian propaganda that you're repeating Russian propaganda. This is the same thing that happened. Here's another quote. Not until 1925 was the stench from the dead propaganda that brought us into the last war so strong that it attracted the attention of the academic scholars who as Sir Gilbert Parker – Sir Gilbert Parker was a propaganda agent who, who organized in the United States. They had these literary agents, and they sent them all over the world. The one who was uh, sent to America was Sir Gilbert Parker. So it attracted the attention of the academic scholars who Sir Gilbert Parker relates had been the first and easiest mark of propaganda. And this is another theme that's echoed in every propaganda book. They target the high-thinking intellectuals in the universities. Oh, here's British propaganda today is very much alive, and as it gives off no stench, its existence is denied. Moreover, its importance in the last war is now decried even by writers who were foremost in uncovering it. So the people that were uncovering it are now memory holing it, probably because they're getting pressured by people. Same thing that goes on here. If you mention that maybe the British are behind it, you get jumped on. Yeah, that sounds familiar. You know, they, they he called for an investigation into that propaganda. There was an investigation into foundations in the 50s. I, I think it was kind of of the same era as the House Un-American Activities Committee. And uh, it was to see if foundations were inherently un-American. And the conclusion was, yes, they were. But it never really focused on... You know, the focus was more on like Russia and communism, which is kind of weird because they were our allies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was nothing right, about yeah. or Germany or Japan that I could tell. Okay, here's another one. Lord Northcliffe is – he was the head of the Wellington House, which was the propaganda house over in the UK back then. It says, when in 1917 Lord Northcliffe came here to the US to reorganize Sir Gilbert Parker's propaganda, he remarked, talking about Americans – they dress alike, they talk alike, they think alike. What sheep? Well, that's not true anymore, really, because this is what's upsetting, is that 
And I was, I noticed this when I was looking at this Notre Dame thing and we did a show on Easter that what we have is the welfare state is the state church. And a lot of us don't believe in it. Half of us don't believe in it. So we have all this conflict. But when you have a unified body, they stick to their culture. So I think that that sentence is more telling than you might think. If you look at what then happened, what they did was they made us not think alike, not dress alike intentionally so that we would schism, which would weaken us. Yes, but, you know, maybe they'll start censoring people who dress differently now for all we know. They're, they're definitely – if you ask questions, if you talk differently about what's going on in the world, you're not allowed to get – you're going to get censored. You're going to get pulled off the internet if you ask questions. Well, they um, do censor dress in France. You're not allowed to wear Muslim garb, right? Or Don't they have laws against that? I don't know. Maybe. I'm pretty sure they do. Like the hijab or whatever. No, they're like the black thing, the burqa, I believe it. Okay, uh, yeah, I think you'll like this one here. The goal of our policy seems to be to regain the power to make over again the same mistakes. We should not go into war to repress a revolt which the policies of democratic powers have made inevitable and which a continuance of those policies will make recurrent. You want me to read that again? Yeah. The goal of our policy seems to be to regain the power to make over the same mistakes again. To make right. the same mistakes again. Yeah. We, we should not go into war to repress a revolt which the policies of the democratic powers have made inevitable and which – No, wait. What does that mean? They set up policies that led to an inevitable revolt, and what? now they're going to go to war against it. I don't think I understand. Like Bernays talks about, you create conditions through policies in this case that causes something that you need to go to war against. Oh, are are they being specific? Is this like my – Conjuring Hitler thing that Prep Rada book where he says that they went in there and made Germany. Yeah, I think so. Because he, he does, does talk about war. that here. Yeah. The propagandist must always assent ideologies. It's the evil in the other man coming out on the surface that he combats. He does it for he does it for their own good. We don't hate the Germans until yes. we get a little scared that we can't lick them. At first, it is only their vicious beliefs. Later, they're gangster leaders. <laughs> we hear that word yeah. a lot. Um, yeah. Finally, it's every blessed Hun whom we would exterminate. The sequence is always the same. It's the reverse of how our theories, ideologies, philosophies of democracy or morality or whatnot are formed. Man behaves in certain ways. We observe the acts of others. We are envious, jealous, or we don't approve. We formulate codes. Soon we have an ideology of society or a code of morality or a system of theology. We have to have a basis for excusing our acts and condemning others. An ideology that is of, for sure. Yeah. A philosophy, a theology is a kind of screen, a camouflage. It enables us to adopt a superior attitude. Same thing going on today. Yeah. Here's another one. This is a quote from a book, which is rare, hard to find book, written by Propaganda in the Next War by Captain Sidney Rogerson. was published last fall. This is 1938, um, and it describes realistically the improved technique of propaganda. The book says, and this was read on the congressional record by Senator Nye, in the next war – this is a British book. This is a British propaganda agent. In the next war, the result will probably depend upon the U.S., Reaction of her public to propaganda properly applied. 
more susceptible than most people are to mass suggestion. Atrocity propaganda will be less effective in the next war. Japan more easily saddled with atrocities, a cynical observation. It goes on to talk about how to go to America into war, Japan needs to be provoked into attacking us. And this was written <laughs> in 1938. Oh, yeah. So the book that I uh, have talked about, I think, I definitely have talked about it on the air, Backdoor to War, which is still in print. And my father got it in the 50s after serving in the Pacific, in the Navy, yeah. in World War II. I, I just scratched my head because it was published by Regnery Press. Regnery Press, I think it's called. And I always thought like that was a, I don't know. I've read that, that, that I read separately that that publishing house what had CIA qualities or connections or was a front for that. And I really, I'm really trying to puzzle through why the CIA was trying to get people like my father, sailors, to look back at World War II and the war in the Pacific as illegitimate by publishing that stuff, which was true. The stuff was true. And then I was thinking, you know, the CIA was behind the war anti-war conflict in the 60s as well. I mean, I think this is just ways of a kind of globalist approach, which I believe the CIA is working for, to break down that cohesion that this guy described earlier, that that, that this was the beginning of the fracture in society. Because I even think the left-right thing is an unnatural fracture in the society. There's no reason for it. There's two competing ideologies. We could just pick one, <laughs> you know, like you really could at this point, this technological advancement. I'm not saying that I'm not a hardcore libertarian. I I'm, don't, I think we could, society would emerge organically without these overlords. However, yeah. you look at Sweden, they were fine. You know, you look at, I'm not saying they were what I want, but I'm just saying there's definitely tens of millions of people who at any given piece of land could agree on a basic ideology. It does not have to be this tooth and nail thing like Huguenots versus Catholics or whatever. Like it's really ridiculous. And I just think that that guy's statement that a hundred years ago or 80 years ago, we all thought the same way is very telling. And then to say that this backdoor to war thing that reveal uh, was very divisive and then you know the the anti-war stuff it's just it's i think it's uh it it all points to this idea of breaking down the nation state i think for the purpose of having a world government yeah um it goes on to talk about this book this is in the footnote there was a good deal of mystery about rogerson's book this is the one that said that japan needed to be goaded into attacking us three years before they attacked us it was difficult to obtain this book um, they reported early in June that there are no copies available. Mind you, this was this chapter of this book was read on the congressional floor, so it was in the congressional record having existed. There was confusion and change in this country. In America, there was evidence of a campaign to suppress the book and to belittle the idea that there was British propaganda. Propaganda hunters were poo-pooed by college professors, you know, the ones that are the first target wow. of propaganda. Propaganda is a conspiracy theory? Yeah. <laughs> well, British propaganda is. 
Not oh yes. right. So the official nine eleven conspiracy theory, which has never been proven in a court of law, is not crazy. But the unofficial conspiracy theories are crazy. Okay, absolutely. So uh, if we were to bring that up now, just like they do, somebody who points the finger at the British, you're called a agent of Putin. You're delivering Russian propaganda by pointing your finger at the British despite the evidence, and there is far more evidence that they are behind this hard evidence than there is that Russia – not to say that Russia didn't attempt to interfere. Every country tries to interfere all the oh, time. I don't know if they would waste their time with that. I don't think they care about our election. What do they care if it's Hillary or Trump? Or even if we're divisive. They're not playing that game. They're over there building, rebuilding their country. They went bankrupt 20 years ago. They are rebuilding their car. I was there with between just last year and then 10 years prior to that. And the transformation was amazing, but they're like, a, they're like an emerging country. I don't think they're doing that stuff. I think they've got bigger bills to pay. They don't, they can't access world financial markets because they went bankrupt. I mean, they can, but like, and we're, they were on their knees because of the way we've been manipulating the oil prices I don't know. I think I just don't think they're going to I don't think they're in this struggle to rebuild the Soviet empire. I don't think they're looking at us. I think they're looking at the future. Even if they did do anything, we're the ones that are great at it. The British are the ones that are great at this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not they don't have the like you've mentioned a lot of times. They don't have as many resources as we do, as the UK does. To conduct these type of operations. I think they're clever. I'm not going to say like the KGB stuff with Putin. That's clever. Like when he was with Chris Wallace, I thought he ate his lunch, even though he was totally lying. Like that picture, he was like, we were, they drew the, like there's a picture of a rocket over Mar-a-Lago. Remember that whole thing? Yeah. Chris Wallace was saying, there's a picture of it over Mar-a-Lago. And he's like, you're out of your mind. And I was like, yeah, I'm sure Chris Wallace is out of his mind. Then I went and looked at the picture and it was totally a rocket over Mar-a-Lago. It's like, wow, wow, that guy's like. Yeah, Putin was in the KGB. He's still, I don't trust him at all, but. No, I don't trust him. And I, I think they're up to something, but I just don't think they're up to that. Yeah, I don't either. And I think that sometimes the little guy. The low man, the guy with the, without the advantage has to take the high road and kind of shame the big powerful incumbent into following rules instead of going for the might is right thing. You know what I mean? Like they, they can take the high road because they're the little guy and the high road is usually about an even playing field and playing above board. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they don't have the power to, to do this through the back door. I yes. think they, you know, they, they'd rather shame us into good behavior by pointing out that we bombed a hospital in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was thinking about that. You mean, you know, Trump joked Russia. If you had the emails, I'd love to see him. He said that sarcastically, but of course, everybody would love to see him. Everybody would love to see right. the emails. And they were released not long after that, apparently. Right. And if, if they were truly trying to help Trump, why would they do something that's going to make him look absolutely yeah. horrible? That's another thing about this stuff. It's so two-dimensional. 
It's not like four dimensional. It's two dimensional. It's like, well, how could you have known that Trump would run for president? You know, like it's like, well, he said it in 1988. <laughs> you know, he laid out his platform on Oprah in 1988. I'm not saying it was like a straight line from there to here, but but he he did his Make America Great again in 2012, which was the same year that Diane Feinstein's husband awarded him the DC post office. Like it's quite possible that there was a couple of years lead time before the political players knew what was going on. I just, I always find that idea that like one thing leads to another and it's fully vetted on Fox news is ridiculous. Yeah. They're always, always one step ahead of you. Always. If not 10 steps, especially the KGB guy. Absolutely. Here's another one. Lord Northcliffe in England and Sir Gilbert Parker remarked that Americans were more gullible than any people except the Chinese. And Americans, especially in our universities, continue to prove it. That we are sheep-like, we put proudly another way. We pride ourselves on doing as others do. Keeping up with the Jones, being in fashion, doing it promptly and keeping up to date. And we are urged by our leaders to conform. The mob is incited to suppress minority and dissident opinion. And our great leaders call for unity of thought. Well, not anymore. Well, I think they are calling for unity of thought. I think I think that's what the suppression of the news is. When you're when you're telling those conspiracy theorists, quote unquote, that they can't have a platform, even though they're saying unpatriotic, they're saying facts, but because they're unpatriotic facts, you're not allowed to think those things. So it's a uniformity of thought when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to who the demon, who the enemy is. We can fight. All we want over the obstruction of justice thing to keep us distracted. But they want everybody having unity of thought when it comes to the the idea yeah, that Russia that, did it. That quote makes it clear that it's uh it's on the level. It's not it's it's what you see is what you get. Whereas now it's all couched in contrariness it's all cat like you can't even trust the news to the point where everything they want to feed you they feed you through leaks you know what yeah, i'm saying yeah. and it, or hacking or accidental like the what was it that was revealed oh, they talk about leaks in here too yeah but i'm just saying as far as our previous like it was clear that there's conformity of thought i would say what's look what we think we're doing now we think we're engaged in a battle of ideology, a battle of thoughts, a battle of truth versus lies with each side thinking the other side is way wrong. Like we definitely don't think that we're conforming. Oh, yeah. No, people don't think they're conforming. They never do. Well, it sounds like they did then. I don't think that's what he's saying. I, I think he's I think he's commenting on it's the idea that we talked about from the morality stuff in the cia manual where it's the mob is going to follow the mob but they are manipulated into discovering it from within themselves you're saying that he's accusing people of that and they are not they don't know they don't know that's what they that's are. what i take that's that's right. my read okay. of it i mean i could be wrong that's that's my take on it there you go Millions are being spent on propaganda to influence American opinion. I think that's important because the economic sanctions, physical war, and propaganda are the three prongs of, of war that Laswell 
identifies and, and writes about. And I think a lot of times, maybe not as much as you war with Iran. Do what? We're already at war with Iran because we've got the propaganda. We've got the same. Exactly. So we are technically it's an, I yeah. mean, people say information war and I think people are more aware that this exists now than they used to be, but it's not like it's this is like some casual thing. This is something that's been studied for over a hundred years and perfected and it is designed to be outside of our awareness. So the stuff that's obvious, if, if that's all we're seeing, then we're not looking. That's why enough. they had to bring in the two sides. Yes. Yes. Exactly. He goes on to say, uh, millions are being spent to influence American opinion to bring us to support the British Empire. Of the world's earnings, 40% is being put into preparations for destruction. There is a huge margin of profit for some. You would not condone it if a large investment had not been made in propaganda to create hatred. You can't hate what you understand. Oh, my gosh. That's why people object to Hitler scholarship. I had a boyfriend for a couple of years who was a German Jewish guy in Germany. And he was like, it was interesting, you know, because he was German. He likes Germany. He sends me books about Germany and he sends me books about Hitler and he sends me books about Churchill. He was a book collector. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, he, he would tell me about like he was a sophisticated, educated person. And he would say like, there are some people who think you shouldn't write books about Hitler or, because you can't hate what you understand. I mean, I, he might've used those exact words to understand is to forgive. That's what he said. To understand is to forgive. British propaganda has used the best brains and unlimited money and every articulate hater that can be enlisted. For two years, it has been directed toward arousing our emotions, our sense of righteousness. Roosevelt has come to the British point of view more rapidly than Wilson did. It's interesting about the Wilson versus FDR thing because FDR was literally – quite possibly literally a prisoner because yeah. he was in the wheelchair. So he couldn't get around. They could absolutely control his information. They said from the beginning, I forget where I read it. It was the inception of the CFR or whatever, where they, all you need to do is control the state department. Cause all they care about is foreign policy. And if you control the state department, you control all the information the president has. And if you control all the information he has, he thinks he's making choices, which is exactly what we go yes. through in this democratic process. But both answers will lead to where you want. And there, there are ways that you get to control the way the president thinks or makes those choices. FDR, you just locked him in a room. Wilson and Carter, they said, had huge egos. So you could, you could, deceive them and they could would not even consider the possibility that somebody was outsmarting them every step of the way. And then I think they always do the ego and now they also have laziness. So uh Bill Clinton, I think, was smart, but he was like highly compromised. I actually have a book right here called Compromise with a picture of Clinton and Bush on it. But the so but then you get into uh Obama I don't, I, I'm not going to call him in. So people said he would just, that he wasn't very proactive. He wasn't lazy, he went for runs and everything, but he liked to, whatever, play basketball and hang out. Um, yeah. and he had ego. And then Trump, I've seen this written. I've double checked it. Maybe it's not true anymore, but said he didn't have a computer. Yeah. So if this guy isn't doing his own, you know, if you don't have a computer, you really, 
you're there's there's no pretense even that you're trying to find out answers for yourself. Like guy is definitely right. not trying to find things out for himself. And when they did the analysis of his tweets when he was during the apprentice, they found that it came from five different devices even on different operating systems. So it's not like he's walking around with his phone. He's not he doesn't have five phones probably. You know what I mean? So like whatever's happening there I believe that his information is totally controlled also. But that, I believe, is why FDR would have come around faster than Wilson. Yeah, they basically seduce him. And, and he was carefully selected for that, too. And he, I did think he had British connections. But FDR, like, I, I've read books about like how he was selected and uh, what qualities he had that they were looking for. A lot of times, like, what they say they look for in Skull and Bones is is people who don't ask a lot of questions. People who will fall in, fall in line. Yes. And one more. I know you got to run. We've got a couple minutes. No, I'm good. I'm good. Whatever. Go. Embroiling the neutrals. The war goes on with increasing bitterness. Those who do not hate with sufficient intensity are not ethical and lack moral responsibility. The only proper attitude in respectable circles is emotional. Soon it will be hysterical. That's 22 years ago, talking about World War One. Already, the Germans are executing children. Soon, they will be raping women. Wait, wait. This is fascinating. What did you say about 22 years ago? He's relating back to 22 years ago prior to World War One. Got it. How the, they and, and so he's relating back. what he, They did the same thing. Already, the Germans are executing children. Soon, they'll be raping women. It's such events that are used to stir emotions. This cruder propaganda is more effective after the finer art has been prepared this way. But Sir Robert's marvelous organization, which has been working on us for three years, as pointed out in these bulletins from the first, remains wholly ignored by Americans, and the British are too clever to deny it. News is confused and contradictory. Situations are not clear. The public, badly informed, is unable to understand or interpret. Confused and alarmed, they naturally revert to moral attitudes. It brings satisfaction to feel that you are right and the other is wrong, that you will fight for righteousness and the other is evil. Then you may vent your hate with a clear conscience and a feeling of moral exultation. That's what the propagandist organizations set up and controlled for their immediate ends by those who rule us have accomplished. I have to say, I was talking about, did I mention when you said about the propaganda that they did the foundations study? Yeah. The, uh, yeah. So the guy, the counsel for that was Renee Wormser. I have his book here. And the other book he wrote was The Myth of the Good and Bad Nations. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it's like this idea that there's good nations and bad nations. Uh, but that comes from this emotionalism, but that emotionalism, it's so crazy. I, I cannot get out of my mind. I met um, the mother of a friend of my husband's in Texas. I was in Texas and this is after living not in Texas for a long time. And I said that I was, uh, this was when Ron Paul was running. So it was like 2012. And I said, I, liked Ron Paul. And I figured, you know, in Texas, at least she's not going to be like, well, you don't like Obama, whatever. And she got pissed at me. She was like, he is dangerous. 
he is dangerous. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, he does not understand the threats to our country. He is dangerous. And I'm, I'm like, this nice lady, uh, my husband always describes like the nicest woman. I love her, whatever. Um, she's like a second mother to me. And she's like totally, and, and sh- just the emotion that gripped her. Cause clearly she had been prepared to hate Ron Paul as a threat to her physical security. Oh my gosh. Yes. And she was like so emotional about it. It was like, she wanted to like run me out of the room with a broom. You know what I mean? Like she was chasing Satan out of her kitchen. I was just like, dude. That, this book talks about that a lot, how you drive people to the point of genuine fear and terror. Not, yes, not, yes, not actual fear and terror. That not, a normal person yeah. she liked could possibly be consorting or fostering the devil. <laughs> yes, yes. It's the anticipation of evil. You know what I'm saying? She was conservative. It's crazy. I mean, this this stuff is is describing. It's the same stuff that's going on right now, and it emphasizes over and over again. Not only this book, but every single one that I've ever read, and I've read a lot of them. That the World War One method, and it's obviously going to be used time and again if it's effective, is to subtly conduct your propaganda on a large, massive, sophisticated scale and turn people's attention to the evil demon. And accuse everything on their propaganda and say it was – that's just their – sometimes it is going to be their propaganda. But when you can create a population that calls every – calls any accusation against one country like the British a conspiracy theory, and you're evil if you say that, and accepts that anything that might possibly be negative towards them or towards uh, what, whatever the interest is, is just evil German or ev- evil Russian propaganda, then you've, you've inoculated. You're not even looking at a suspect, not even looking at them, despite every evidence that comes out. Well, you that's, what this all is. This is, yeah. that's what this all is. Don't start bringing me facts that might get people not to support our side. Bingo. Which, which brings us all back to that whole thing that I've noticed since I was 13 years old. If you have to make stuff up to prove your point, maybe you ought to revisit your point. Exactly. And they've been talking about this more and more in public. Cortez, we played that clip where she's talking about how the truth doesn't really matter. It's the story. Remember? Yeah, yeah, and Stacey Abrams. Stacey campaign. Abrams said the same thing. There was an article about Pete uh, Budovich. It said – because apparently he doesn't have any policies on his website. <laughs> None. So great. An article is about Budovich or whatever his name is. Is It's about storytelling and then policy. Storytelling and – so making up a story, and this is that <laughs> alternative vision of America that the indivisible guy talks about, and this alternative vision of America that's being told, this story is being told not just by one person. It's being told by a collective group of progressive candidates that each have – and progressive politicians that each have a different angle. Stacey Abrams, the voter suppression angle. There's now a documentary that's been made on the truth about the 2018 Georgia election, and it's made by the same <laughs> – group of people that make the indivisible videos and it's called oh my gosh i forgot what it was called it's called suppressed yeah suppressed which is crazy my guess is that she got a greater percentage of the votes than any democratic candidate for governor since the carter era probably 
And that in itself demonstrates, I mean, I have to look up those numbers, but my, my thinking is that she got very close or closer than anybody's gotten in a long time from the Democrats. And that, that proves the opposite. It's like Obama winning by a lot, winning by more, a greater percentage than Clinton. It's like a race being probably the only thing that is different. He was actually further to the left than Clinton openly that people probably liked it more than disliked it. So like, it's less likely, I think, that she was suppressed because of the great turnout. But what they really wanted, I think, was to get it very close so that any suppression could be painted as the difference maker. Yeah. And she's been setting this up for years since at least 2014. She's been setting up this narrative. So people were trying to get it close. They were trying to get it close. That's why she was, they were giving her softballs and everything, but getting it close actually belies that she was favored, not suppressed, but it doesn't matter because the truth doesn't matter. As her campaign said, it's not about the truth. It's about the deeper truth. Yes, their deeper truth and their new vision of America. Abrams is the voter suppression. Get rid of the electoral. And I can't remember who's doing that. Was it Elizabeth Warren? Maybe. And then yes, there's it's the, Elizabeth Warren. And there's the universal basic income is yes. Andrew Yang. This is a team effort to present a new vision. This is the reason why you're well, not going to have Trump impeached. Yes. And the other thing is, I think it, to put a little of a more pragmatic, cynical thing, it reminds me of price discrimination where they can charge, I mean, it's illegal for the most part, but you can charge people from different categories more. So you could, somebody's of a different, you know, more gullible, whatever, price discrimination, they, they say you can't do it. It sets a price based on the buyer rather than on the, the product sold yeah. so that you can capture as much as the market will bear by segmenting the market in just that way. So I feel like they, they say there's 21 Democrats running for president, but you told me there's like 600 people running for president. Technically, but yeah. yeah. I feel yeah. like maybe they're just trying to get fundraising from every single issue. Oh, and absolutely. By associated person. And then I looked up like what they do with the money if they drop out. And there's limited things they can do with it. But one thing is they can, I believe, kick it to the party. Yes. This is in a section of the threat to our civil liberties. And this is how this is kind of what I relate to what's going on with Facebook and social media and silencing, just shutting down anybody who questions the narrative. Do you know what the round table is? Yeah, the roads thing. So I think so, about? yes. Yeah, the, you know, it's the precursor to it's what created the CFR and Chatham yes, House and yes. the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the round table. They they generated probably Colonel House, who was the first handler. And Woodrow Wilson was his candidate. And they're the ones who basically said, just control the State Department. And that's when they got FDR was the perfect candidate for them. And they're British. And it was Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes of Rhodesia, of De Beers, of the Rhodes Scholarship. In 1940, the roundtable said to obtain unity against a foreign danger, a democracy must inevitably curtail discussion. A sense of pearl demands sacrifice, particular in respect to civil liberties, in order that the nation may survive. Goes on to say. Wait, who wrote this? That's that's the round table. Is quoted as saying that. Nineteen forty, January. So, someone from the round table, or was it like an official publication? It was a publication. 
So that's very interesting, that quote. Can you can you read it again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To obtain unity against a foreign danger, democracy must inevitably curtail discussion. A sense of pearl demands sacrifice, particularly in respect to civil liberties, in order that the nation may survive. Sacrifice. Wow. I think they're saying that civil liberties should be curtailed to generate the sense of sacrifice. They don't even need to curtail them. They just need you to feel like you're sacrificing. I mean, that's possible. See, but that just shows how sinister these guys are, how like deeply psychological they are and how what you see is definitely not what you get. Yeah. This whole section, he quotes different publications and people. He quotes statements they make, which are about basically crushing the First Amendment leading up to this war. One of them is from President Roosevelt. says, President Roosevelt, in his address to Congress on January 3rd, reiterated his call for national unity. And he warns, this is great, he warns of those seeking to muddy the stream of our national thinking, weakening us in the face of danger. We must combat them as we would the plague. Oh, FDR's propaganda was crazy. But that that's what they said about England converting to Christianity in the face of, was it Viking invasions or Saxon invasions? I don't know. But like, it's why Tolstoy was a spiritualist anarchist. It's like, you can't, you can throw your morals out the window if you want to, but then what's the point? Yeah. All right. Then he said, the author of the book, Now, if ever, is the time for open discussion, for questioning and challenging of every view and statement that comes to us, lest we soon find ourselves put over on, as planned by numerous bills now before us in Congress. Let us crab at every act that we do not approve. See, I like him. He's like, let's, uh, he's like you. He wants to, he says, let's question everything. (laughs) Well, I just try to question the stuff that doesn't make sense. (laughs) Yes, yes. It's a good policy to have, which is a lot of it. Yes, I know. Well, none of it does because they have to lie to you because they want you to do something that isn't self-defensive. It's not even in your own interest. They're, you know what I mean? They're taking your money. They're taking your, uh, right of self-defense and they're using it for offense for their own gain, plunder. It's sick. I mean, it takes a lot. It takes a full scale propaganda machine to keep our, to keep us buying it. (laughs) <laughs> right yeah it absolutely it does it totally does it's why it's so easy for us to pull it apart because it's all you have to do is have the courage and the effort and the time you know to do it but it's so it, it we takes will so never, much yes. we will it, never run out of material right we're going to see more and more of the left and right agreeing that there wasn't collusion they will disagree about obstruction because they'll fight domestically. We will, I, I bet that we will see increased army and military recruitment in the UK and here. We'll probably see more and more commercials and slowly but surely the collusion narrative will fizzle away so we can all unify in some sort of war effort. That sounds right. That sounds right. It'll yes. just, somebody will come out. Somebody will come out, maybe Tulsi Gabbard. I, she, oh, that's she, who I wanted to like tell that. you about. Yeah, she'll come out and say, because she made a little speech that said, she put an ad, like, we should be happy that Mueller found no collusion, and we should be worried about what really matters as a country, as a unifying whatever. So she'll come out and say, like, we we need to just focus on the real threat, Russia. <laughs> 
Well, I think it was her that said that she accused CNN's Farad Zakira of goading Trump into war with Russia. Really? Yeah. Tulsi Gabbard lashed out at CNN host Fareed Zakaria in an Instagram post Wednesday, accusing him of goading President Trump into war with Russia over the Venezuela crisis. Okay, pause. Goading Trump into war with Russia over the Venezuela crisis. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Keep going. TV talking heads love trying to goad Trump into going to war with Russia, Gabbard wrote in her Instagram post. Here's just one example. Fareed Zakaria is trying to get Trump to prove he's not guilty of appeasement by going to war with Russia over Venezuela. Hmm. That's interesting because this book talks about Venezuela, too, and talks about the oil. Mm-hmm. It's got the biggest oil reserve in the world. It, yeah, it's said. I mean, to think that this is about, like, socialism. We're socialists. It's not about socialism. It's a very, uh, it's a very, like, they did not have a civil rights era and they have a very, like, um, their racial stratification and their wealth stratification is highly aligned. It's like a pyramid with, like, the white European colonists still on top with all the money and the natives and the workers and probably former slaves. I don't know. They definitely have an Afro Venezuelan community. there, big that's integrated at the bottom. And so when you look at like the wealth and all that, they you're like, Oh yeah, we're going to crash. The people at the top absolutely want us to help blah, blah. But the people at the bottom are like, you know what? You're just, it's not fair. There was no way it's ill gotten gains. And like all societies that are structured like that, in my suspicion, the former slaves, the former serfs, all that, the former, you know, feudal subjects know that the resources have already been distributed at the top and they're not going anywhere. So their only hope is that what's at the top is redistributed down through whatever, housing, food, clothing, health care, I guess reparations is the way of looking at it. But they know that money is never coming back. Whereas here, we don't really have that big a problem with that, especially since we never had these laws of entail, I think it is, where like the oldest son gets the entire estate or, or they have like 99-year leases like in England where it goes reverts to the family 100 years later. So you always kind of get the money back at the top. It's not cool. And uh, I don't know how it works in Venezuela, but like there's real issues there. And the idea that we're in there to save the people from socialism is ridiculous. I mean, we're there yeah. to make sure that we always have access or control of the oil and to make matters worse because they had the power from that position of oil wealth that if there is a populist government in there, a socialist government, whatever, they were turning other American countries away from having clear U.S. hegemony over this region. Yeah, this book talks about, I don't know if this is still true, but it mentions Venezuela in the context that it's talking about oil, and it says that the British owns a large number of their oil reserves already, has control over it. I don't know if that's still true. In Venezuela? Yeah. I don't know. That's an interesting question, like how if it was nationalized, if Chavez nationalized it or what. But that's how it was in Iran way back when, when they elected the socialist Mossadegh, who who took it away from Saudi Aramco or whatever it was called, the uh, 
was it British Petroleum? It was British Petroleum. Yes, yes, that's it. That, that's the name I was trying to think of. Yeah, so I don't know how it shook out, but Iran, you saw what happened to them when they tried to take the oil back. Yeah, there's they, a whole section called Blood, Oil, and Dollars. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I want to read that one. That's it for today. I know um, we ran a little long, but um, I think we got a lot of good information out there. Yeah, awesome. Thank you again to everyone who has contributed via PayPal or Patreon. We could not do the show without you. And anyone who finds value in our work and wants to contribute as well, you can do so at Patreon or PayPal. I'll put the links in the description at thepropreport.com. And we will talk to you guys and next time. I absolutely love seeing great reviews. Yes, yes, And yes. sharing and I just absolutely does my heart good. Yes. Love it, love it, love it. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. We will talk to you soon. Later.